0: everyone, welcome to the February 2020 issue of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ishu. This month brings us an outstanding issue regarding diabetic hyperglycemic emergencies by Dr. Evan Dingle and Corey Slovis. As always, I highly encourage you to go online at ebmedicine.net and review the full issue. It is jam-packed with pearls. And before we dive into any of that information, I want to take a moment and talk to you about just two things first if you haven't already taken the listener survey we highly value your feedback i would greatly appreciate you taking one minute to answer a few questions that link is in the show notes and second the society of emergency medicine physician assistants is holding its 360 conference march 16th through the 20th in chicago and Ev medicine will be there We would love it if you would stop by the booth so that we can meet you. And as a special discount for conference attendees, we're offering 50% off the subscription price. And if you're not attending the conference, you can find out more about discounts that are available to you at www.ebmedicine.net forward slash app. Everything in the emergency department seems to come in threes. Isn't that the truth? The other day I was working a typical night shift in the department when my charge nurse Rob comes up to me and says, hey doc, we need you in room 10. I follow him over there and I see that EMS is already in the room with a young lady. She's 23 years old. She has a history of type 1 diabetes. She's known to them. She's been in the emergency department multiple times. They know her from prior transports, and they tell me that she's not compliant with her insulin because she can't afford it. Now, she's a little altered. She's a little confused. They tell me she was tachycardic in transport. Her pulse rate's about 130. Her blood pressure was 96 over 50 on the way in. They put in a line. They started IV fluids, and they checked her sugar, which is reading just high on the meter. When I walk over to talk to her, I notice that she's tachypnic, She's still hypotensive, blood pressure's still in the 90s, and nursing is checking her vitals. Now her temperature's normal, but her sugar is still over 500. And I'm thinking, okay, this is run-of-the-mill DKA, right? We've done this a million times before and we're gonna do it again. And the charge nurse is looking at me with that look of, I recognize this patient and I know she's been here before and we're gonna do the same thing, right? Now I have to admit, some part of me is thinking, well, this is just a straightforward DKA. I could call and get her admitted right now. But a large part of what we do in the emergency department is resuscitation. I mean, we are the resuscitationists. And so we start IV fluids. I look at the nurse at the bedside. I say, hey, we're going to start some normal saline. She's already had 500 cc's. Let's finish off the first liter here and then hang another one. And in addition, I want you to go grab the IV insulin, let's give her an IV bolus, let's start the drip, and let's draw some labs. And she looks at me and says, do you want the DKA protocol? And I say, yeah, absolutely. That should include the CBC, the CMP, the serum acetone, uh, a urinalysis, uh, and a chest x-ray. And does she have a fever? She says, no, her temperature's normal. So I say, okay, we can probably skip on the blood cultures, but uh, let's wait and see what the urine and the chest x-ray look like, and I'll make the final decision then. So if you want to draw them and hold them aside, I'll let you know. Now, the patient's a little confused, so I can't get any history out of her. My assumption is she's not taking her insulin because she can't afford it, And we can deal with that at a later time. And as soon as her mental status starts to get better, I'll be able to get a better history out of her. But her exam is kind of what I expect to see. She has tachypnea. She has tachycardia. Her abdomen is non-tender. She will respond to pain and she does respond to stimulation, but she's very lethargic. And uh, that's not really unexpected. So we begin treatment and I step out of the room. I'm off to see my next patient. I'll be back in just a few minutes to check and see how this young lady's doing. Now, today happens to be one of those days where I have an observer. He's a delightful and very intelligent premed student who is interested in emergency medicine, and he's been with me a couple of times, so he's comfortable asking some questions. His name's Joe, and Joe turns to me and says, Hey, Doc, uh, I remember from organic chemistry, uh, ketones, we're talking about, beta-hydroxybutyrate. Now, you said something about serum acetone. Is that just another name for the same thing? And I say, hey, that's a great question, Joe. Actually, our lab doesn't have the serum test for beta-hydroxybutyrate. Now, a lot of emergency departments do, and if they do, that's a great luxury because it turns out that's the major ketone body that's produced in DKA but the standard nitroprusside reaction test that they run in our lab doesn't actually even pick that up. But there are other ketones, specifically acetone and acetoacetate that are detected by this test. And so that's why I said serum ketones because that's what we call it here in our department. So Joe and I go off to see a few more patients and then later Rob comes up to me again and says, hey doc, I need you in room 15, another sick patient. I walk into the room and there's EMS again, and this time they have brought us a 76-year-old gentleman who was not really able to give them much history because he is altered. Now, they tell me at the scene, his wife mentioned that he'd been having some weakness and general lethargy that was worsening over the last 10 days, and this morning he wouldn't even talk to her, which is why she called EMS. When they got there, his pressure was 90 over 60, his pulse was 110, his respiratory rate 16, Uh, he didn't have a fever, his oxygen saturation was 96% on room air, uh, and a finger stick glucose read high. They did manage to get that he's got a history of heart disease, specifically coronary disease and congestive heart failure. And they tell me his wife's on the way, so we'll expect her soon. Meanwhile... I go over to chat with this gentleman, and again, I'm not getting much out of him. He's pretty confused. He does say he takes some medicines. He's not sure if he takes any blood thinners. He doesn't know if he's ever been diagnosed with diabetes, and he's not quite with it enough to give me much of a reliable history. EMS tells me that they initiated an IV before getting here. They started 500 cc's of normal saline, uh, and that's all they've done so far. So I look at the nurse after examining him and finding not a whole lot on examination other than maybe some dry mucous membranes. Uh, and I say, okay, let's uh, let's get these tests. I'll go place the orders. He's going to need a CBC, a CMP, a UA, uh, and a couple of other things, maybe a portable chest, uh, a troponin, an EKG. And the nurse looks at me and says, oh, okay, and uh Two liters, normal saline, insulin, drip. You know, is this kind of the same thing? Uh, Are we just going to repeat room 10 all over again? And I say, wait, I know his sugar's high, and he clearly needs some resuscitation, but he does have a history of CHF. He has coronary disease. Uh, We don't know if he normally takes insulin. Hopefully his wife will show up soon and give us some more of that history. But in the meantime, we're going to take the fluids a little more slowly. So he had 500 cc's, let's give him another 500, let's see if he's making any urine, let's get his pressure above 100, uh, and then we'll reassess once we get some more information. Meanwhile, it's okay to send off the serum acetone and let's make sure to call EKG and get that done stat. I just wanna make sure he hasn't had an MI or something that's triggering this. Now we walk out the room and Joe looks at me again and says, hey, that's uh, an interesting contrast. You know, the first person we saw was in DKA. This guy's in DKA, and but that lady looks really, really sick. Uh, and this guy is just kind of confused. I mean, you think he has, like, uh, meningitis, he's had a stroke, he's got a bleed in his head. What's going on? So I pull him aside because we have a few minutes now in between patients, and I say, actually, you know, you bring up a really excellent point. Let's talk about the difference between these two patients. There are two hyperglycemic states that we're dealing with here. One is DKA, that's that first girl we saw who's not taking her insulin. Second is something called hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome. And this is actually not an insulin deficient state. This is a hyperosmolar state, typically something we see in the elderly and in people who have multiple comorbidities. Now they come in very, very hyperglycemic and altered not like uh, focal neurological deficits from head injury altered, but more like globally encephalopathic altered. They may have some small amount of ketones, but they're usually not acidotic, and their labs, you know, their bicarb is usually normal, and their anion gap is usually normal. The difficult part is actually trying not to flood them with fluids because we know they're severely volume deficient. In fact, these patients who have HHS, are actually more fluid deficient than our DKA patient over there. But yet they have all of these other comorbidities. You know, they're elderly, they have heart disease, they have other medical issues that prevent us from just drowning them in fluids. And we have to resuscitate a little bit more carefully and watch out for things like pulmonary edema. Now, while Joe and I are talking, the respiratory therapist interrupts us and says, hey, doc, I'm going to go into room 10 now. You want an arterial blood gas on that patient with the DKA? And I say, actually, there is a study that's shown that VBG, or venous blood gas, is actually just as diagnostic as arterial blood gas. In fact, the variance in pH is so small that it's of no clinical significance and made a difference in disposition in only 1% of patients and really made treatment changes in less than 4% of patients. And since I really am only looking for a pH here, maybe a PCO2, I think we're fine getting a VBG. This poor young lady's probably been stuck a hundred times with the multiple cases of DKA she's had. So the respiratory therapist looks at me noddingly and off she goes to get the VBG. And Joe asks, hey, Should we be getting one on this guy in room 15 as well? And I say, hey, that's a great suggestion. That way we can tell for sure that this is HHS because we'd expect his pH to be normal. So we order the test. And just then, like we predicted, things come in threes and my charge nurse comes up to me once again and says, doc, room 17, one more time. So in I go, and EMS is once again at the bedside with a young man this time, 30 years old, who has a history of diabetes and an insulin pump. He's a little ill-looking, but he's awake and talking, and he tells me that his pump's been alarming for about a few hours now, uh, and EMS says his vitals were okay. His blood pressure was 110 over 66. His pulse rate, uh, 120 in transport. He's a little tachypneic, 26 times a minute. He's afebrile. He was 100% oxygen saturation on room air, and his finger state glucose read high. And when I asked the young man, well, why did you call EMS? He said, well, my pump was beeping and then I started developing nausea and abdominal pain and cramps. And I know this cluster of symptoms. I've had this before. He says, this usually means something's gone wrong and I'm going into DKA and I just need to take care of this sooner than later because I don't want to feel that way again. And I look at the nurse and I say, hey, this is a very astute young man. We check his insulin pump, his tubing is kinked, his injection site doesn't seem to be working, there's some malfunction going on. So we disconnect the pump, we get a peripheral IV, we start his IV fluids, and the nurse looks at me again and says, DKA protocol? And I say, yeah, absolutely. Two liters, normal saline, give him a insulin bolus, start him on the insulin drip, and let's send off the usual labs, the CBC, the CMP, the urine get the portable chest x-ray, have him come in here and just get the VBG now so we know what his acid base status is. And I'll be back in just a few minutes. And the patient looks at me acknowledging that, "Yep, this is what I get all the time. And we give him a little medication for his nausea, while I finish the rest of his exam. And just like EMS noted, he's tachypneic, he's tachycardic, his blood pressure's normal, his skin is dry, his abdomen's a little diffusely tender, but there's no rebound and no guarding there, uh, and certainly nothing peritoneal to suggest appendicitis or something more dangerous or surgical. And so we walk out, and Joe looks at me and goes, so what's this guy got going on in his belly? So we spend a couple of minutes talking about DKA, and generalized vague abdominal pain is a pretty common presentation for that cluster Uh, and in fact in children it can often be confused for a viral gastroenteritis in a child who's not known to be diabetic you might think nausea vomiting maybe a little bit of diarrhea and abdominal cramps and you've got gastroenteritis and forget that oh yeah this could be a presentation for new onset of dka And so he looks at me and says, well, how come our guy over there in room 15, the elderly gentleman, isn't having any abdominal pain? He didn't really seem to be tender. And I say, you know, again, what an outstanding question. That gentleman over there, at least our working diagnosis, is that he has HHS, which I mentioned before is actually a different disease process, but it presents with hyperglycemia. So... The symptom cluster there is altered mentation and high blood sugar without the acidosis, and they don't frequently present with abdominal pain. In fact, if someone of that sort presented with abdominal pain... I'd be far more concerned that the underlying cause of the abdominal pain is actually what triggered the HHS. So we'd have to go investigating that abdomen for other pathology, infectious pathology, surgical pathology. But in this case, in this particular patient, who we know is an insulin-dependent diabetic, who meets the symptom cluster for DKA, it is actually pretty common to have diffuse non-focal abdominal pain as a presenting symptom. So back out we go to the main part of the unit, and it's time to review some labs on our initial patient, the young 23-year-old lady with a DKA who can't afford her insulin. And we've got our VBG. Her pH is 7.1, and her serum bicarb is less than 10. Her potassium is 4, and her sodium is low. But when we correct for the hyperglycemia using our handy-dandy calculator, it's actually normal. And her CBC shows a little bit of a leukocytosis, which we know is not unusual in DKA. Her white count is about 18,000. And her urinalysis doesn't show signs of infection. And then I remember, oh, yeah, we did a chest X-ray on her as well. And we go take a look at that. And that's normal. So I give a call to our admitting team and have a conversation with our hospitalist. And he goes, oh, yeah, I remember this lady. She's here a lot. She doesn't take her insulin. She can't afford it. And uh, we'll have to have that conversation with social work and case management again. Uh, And as he's reviewing the labs, he goes, "Um, we didn't check a pregnancy test on this patient. And I say, oh, you know what? You're absolutely right. I'll go add that right now. So I add the pregnancy test and I move on to addressing some needs from some other patients. And then we run into a problem. I'm called back to room 17. And the 30-year-old guy that I saw earlier who was awake and talking is now ashen and unresponsive. The nurse rolls in the room with the code cart as I look up on the monitor and I see a waveform that I remember. It gets bigger and it gets smaller and then bigger again and smaller again. And it looks like someone has taken a ribbon and twisted it at multiple points. And it gets wider and narrower with these twisting points. And I remember, this is torsade. And just as I'm saying that, in runs the respiratory therapist and says, hey, doc, I don't understand. His pH is 7.2, his bicarb was only 15, and his potassium is 3.2. And then it hits me, and I understand what has happened to this patient. We initiated the diabetic DKA protocol on him as soon as he walked in, and I asked the nurse to go ahead and begin his insulin therapy, not knowing his potassium because I made the assumption that much like every other DKA patient I've treated, this potassium was going to be normal or high. But this particular patient, who had been vomiting, had a low potassium. His K started at 3.2 before I began the insulin, and that insulin pushed all of his extracellular potassium back into the cells. Now, every DKA patient is going to need potassium supplementation at some point, The only question is when. In fact, most of them are going to need on the order of two to three hundred milliequivalents of potassium during their hospital stay. But initiation of that potassium is very much reliant on what their initial level is. And initiation of insulin is dependent on what that initial level is. So initial resuscitation in a DKA patient is fluids until the potassium is known. And then once the potassium is known, either initiation of insulin or potassium plus insulin or potassium alone, depending on what that level was. If the level was high, above 5.2, we're just starting insulin. If the level is in the normal range, we're starting insulin and potassium at the same time. If the level is low, say 3.3 or less, then we should be replacing potassium first with the addition of magnesium automatically, just assuming that that's low as well, before we begin insulin therapy. And that was my mistake here. And I also realize it was my mistake with my first patient. Unfortunately for this young man, his potassium was low, and I drove his potassium to a critically low level and now pushed him into this rhythm. shock treatment for torsade is cardioversion 300 joules and we get him back he has a pulse he has a blood pressure he's not maintaining very well but he's definitely awake and at this point we turn off his insulin we begin his potassium infusion and I start giving him two grams of magnesium sulfate intravenously immediately and then I put in a central line so I can give him the potassium a little bit more rapidly and keep a close eye on his potassium, ordering those levels every two hours while I'm waiting for him to get an ICU bed. A lesson definitely learned. I step out, I take a deep breath, I refocus, I look at Joe and I nod. Yep, that was intense. And then I turn to our other two patients. The young lady who was admitted to the hospitalist is pregnant. That's right, she's pregnant. There are five conditions that precipitate DKA or HHS. Infection, infarction like MI or bowel ischemia, indiscretion like dietary noncompliance, insulin deficiency, and lastly, infant on board. That's the five eyes, and the last one was the cause of our 23-year-old, insolent, non-compliant diabetics, DKA. So I get a hold of my hospitalist colleague, and I tell him the result, and tuck tail between my legs and walk away, a little ashamed that I had forgotten to check this, among all of our other tests. And lastly, I turn my attention to our 76-year-old male. His wife shows up and doesn't really give me much else in the way of history. He's not a known diabetic. I explained to her that his sugar is critically high and that he's gonna need to be admitted to the ICU. And I explained that we're still looking for the underlying cause, but thankfully his EKG was normal and his troponin was negative. Phew, that was intense. Three patients, three intense cases, all hyperglycemic and all wonderfully guided by this month's issue. Now these weren't real patient encounters, but if you haven't already taken a look at the print issue, there are case scenarios every month that detail some of the finer points being covered by the topic of the month. And these three cases actually came directly from this month's issue. They're not far-fetched and there's certainly cases that you could encounter today on your shift so before i sign off i just want to cover some of the outstanding pearls that came out of this issue and you'll find all of these summarized for you at the end of the publication in the points and pearls section our dka patients are going to be volume depleted And, in fact, your typical DKA patient has a deficit of around 3 to 6 liters. And in HHS, that deficit is higher, 9 to 12 liters. But that rapid fluid administration is only going to be given until hemodynamic instability has resolved. Once the patient isn't in shock anymore, we're going to back off, and we're only going to give that fluid at 250 to 500 mLs per hour. And you may be wondering, with all of the recent discussion about balanced fluids, should we be giving lactated ringer or some other solution instead of normal saline? Well, the current guidelines from the ADA still include normal saline, but several recent studies suggest an advantage to using a balanced crystalloid. But there's no definitive proof, so the optimal fluid is really up to you in this case. And now let's turn our attention to insulin. You know, in the case samples, we talked about giving an IV insulin bolus followed by a continuous infusion. And although that is still in some recommended therapies and protocols, the IV insulin bolus is being called into question. There is increasing evidence that this does not actually yield any benefit to the patient. It doesn't result in earlier discharge from the ICU or from the hospital, and it doesn't result in more rapid response to therapy. And it might even result in more hypoglycemic episodes. So there isn't a lot of evidence to support giving the bolus, and you certainly don't have to give it. Lastly, let's turn our attention to children. There is an increased risk of cerebral edema in children, more so than in adults. And this is especially true in the critically ill children. There aren't any specific therapies or interventions that have been shown to cause cerebral edema. But there is an association between sodium bicarbonate and cerebral edema. And that may be just because it's the sicker patients who get the sodium bicarbonate. But because of that association, we don't give sodium bicarbonate to children in DKA unless their acidosis is severe. And severe equates less than 6.9 pH. Also in children it's recommended that IV fluids alone are given for the first hour before initiation of any insulin therapy. And when it's finally initiated, not only is there no bolus recommended, but the starting infusion rate of 0.1 units per kilo per hour that we use in adults is actually cut in half or even in a quarter for children. And lastly, regardless of age, be weary Be very weary of intubating your DKA patients. They are doing their best to compensate with a respiratory alkalosis. That tachypnea is their body's mechanism for dealing with the severe metabolic acidosis of DKA. And intubating a patient who has DKA, especially with rapid sequence induction and paralytics, can put you in a host of trouble if you're not ready to hyperventilate them to the degree that they were doing before you intubated them. These people can become critically acidotic and die very, very quickly. So unless absolutely necessary, avoid intubating these patients. And if you do, consider a very short acting paralytic so that you can put them on a pressure control setting and allow their natural respiratory rate to continue to compensate. Well, that's it for this month's issue of Amplify. If you need a rapid reference for any of the things covered in this month's issue, there is a fantastic clinical pathway in the issue on page 10 that will walk you through step-by-step the care for these critical patients. Please don't forget to take a look at the show notes and click on the link to the listener survey. And if you're attending the SEMPA 360 conference in March, stop by our booth and say hello. Until next month, I'm Sam Michoud.